Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net, episode 87, Numerical Mysteries, Neopythagorean Transcendence, Arithmology, and Nicomachus of Gerasa. Well, since we're taking a break from the metaphysical and looking at the technical side of esotericism in the first and second centuries, we thought it would be a good idea to take this opportunity to cover Nicomachus of Gerasa, a crucially important second century mathematician, harmonic theorist, and best of all, arithmologist. But in terms of approaching Nicomachus, we then thought it would be a good idea to fill in a few gaps in our previous coverage of the so-called Neopythagorean tradition. We haven't yet addressed Moderatus of Gades, for example, and ancient esotericism nerds across the globe have been writing us angry letters about it. So this episode will aim to do three things. Firstly, we want to review and nuance a few points about this whole Neopythagoreanism business, so as to be very clear. Because as we know, whenever the name Pythagoras is mentioned, in antiquity as today, sloppiness and easy ahistorical associations seem to follow as night follows day. So once we've set the stage, we'll then do a little survey of the Neopythagorean tradition. I'm putting the word tradition in quotes because there really isn't one, but you'll see what I mean as we progress through this episode. So we'll talk about this non-tradition from the Hellenistic period up to the 2nd century. So a bit of review will be involved. And finally, we'll talk about the great Nicomachus, a central figure both in esoteric thought, he was perhaps the most influential exponent of arithmology in the Greek tradition, and through the influence he had on the theology of arithmetic, a book we shall be discussing, became kind of the fountainhead of later arithmological speculation, but also in mainstream mathematics. So let's get to it. First of all, we should remind ourselves what we mean by all the terms surrounding the dreaded Pythagoras and his followers. So we have Pythagoras himself, whom we discussed in episode 16. This is the man about whom we know almost nothing for sure, and who for some reason became a kind of palimpsest for all kinds of ideas in later times. In antiquity, he was known as the father of vegetarianism, the teacher of metempsychosis, the founder of philosophy, the discoverer of various mathematical and harmonic laws, and so on and so on. Wonderworking sage, all that. In modern times, he lives on in many esoteric movements as a generally wise, initiated sort of dude, especially when numbers get mentioned. As soon as someone gets Kabbalistic, meaning as soon as someone starts to draw numerical correspondences out of a text or otherwise add and subtract in an esoteric context, we are said to be working in the Pythagorean tradition. This is a stock association with no historical link to Pythagoras himself, except for the fact that ancients from about the Hellenistic period onward also made this same stock association. So it's a fallacy with such a long pedigree that maybe it doesn't count as a fallacy anymore. Meanwhile, scholars have painted us pictures of Pythagoras, the early scientist, Pythagoras the shaman, Pythagoras the founder of a political association, Pythagoras the mystery initiate, Pythagoras the pre-Socratic philosopher, etc., etc. Now, let's forget about Pythagoras. There was historically a philosophical movement known pretty much by contemporaries, so Aristotle is a crucial source here, as are Aristoxenus and others, 
as Pythagoreans. We discussed them in episode 17 of the podcast. These include Philolaus and Archytas, two people who influenced Plato, who were alive in Plato's day. We can say that these people were doing something recognizable as philosophy, and we can also say that they influenced Plato to the core. What we can't really say is what their connection was to Pythagoras, although many a scholar has a theory here. We call these folks the early Pythagoreans, and their period extends from roughly 530 to 430 BCE. So, we have Pythagoras and the early Pythagoreans, two very different phenomena. After these fellows stopped doing their thing, and they seem to have just sort of fizzled out for some reason, or perhaps this is just our scholarly prejudice because they were doing philosophy after all, and philosophy didn't um, fizzle out. So after, anyway, what we identify as early Pythagoreanism, there's a bit of a gap. And then a large, actually a huge range of texts begins to appear. And these are the so-called pseudo-Pythagorean texts of the Hellenistic period, which start appearing often under the names of putative early Pythagoreans, like Timaeus, for example, who was, as far as we know, a figment of Plato's imagination, but he quickly took on a life of his own as a thinker, who, not surprisingly, propounded a kind of worldview not unlike that found in Plato's dialogue, the Timaeus. Or we could take Brontinus or Brotinus, another putative early Pythagorean, thought to have written a book called Perinou Kaidianoias on noose and discursive thought, now lost but preserved in fragments. And this was a very Platonist, even Neoplatonist, although we don't go in for that sort of thing here at the Schwepp, take on the metaphysics of cognition. So we talked about this pseudo-Pythagorean tradition, if we can call it a tradition, in episodes 46 and 47. And then in episode 48, we introduced Neo-Pythagoreanism. So this was a complex phenomenon involving lifestyle choices like vegetarianism and beards, a general atmosphere of the oogly-boogly. So sometimes in antiquity, mentioning the name of Pythagorean would bring to mind a field of knowledge not entirely dissimilar from what is conjured up by the modern word, the occult, and speculations about the metaphysics of number. Now, it's this last field, numerical speculation, that this episode is concerned with. So we are going to be talking specifically about Neopythagorean theories. Now, let's go back to the first century BCE and just do a quick historical recap, going over some of the material we've already covered in the podcast, and also filling in a few gaps that we left open. We all remember Nigidius Figulus from episode 60, the man whom Cicero credits with having revived Pythagoreanism in the late Roman Republic of the first century BCE. He's a Pythagorean. Okay, then sometime in the first century CE, we remember Apollonius of Tiana, another Pythagorean, whom we discussed in episode 65. Apollonius was a Pythagorean of the wonder-working sage type, wandering around the Roman world, enacting miracles, observing a vegetarian diet, and so on. We're not too concerned with these sorts of Pythagoreans in this episode, as I mentioned, but it's good to mention them here because they contribute part of the rich cultural sphere, which became known as Pythagoreanism. We also have in the first century CE a number of philosophers, who can conveniently be described as existing within the broad church of Middle Platonism, 
who emphasize number in their thought. These can be and have been described as Pythagoreans or Neo-Pythagoreans, depending on who's describing them. There is, of course, the great Philo of Alexandria, who, as we saw in episode 57, was very interested in number from metaphysical and also symbolic points of view. We also have Eudorus of Alexandria, a Middle Platonist just a bit earlier than Philo, who John Dillon has conjectured might have been a teacher of the great Jewish sage. At any rate, Eudorus was, as far as we can reconstruct his thought, a fairly influential early Platonist philosopher whose interest in numbers seems to have been what causes him sometimes to be described as a Neo-Pythagorean. Eudorus himself seems to have identified himself as a Pythagorean, or rather to have presented his teachings as being those of Pythagoras, but in fact they seem to have nothing to do with the historical Pythagoras, drawing rather on Plato's unwritten doctrines, the numbery stuff found in dialogues like the Timaeus and the Republic, and perhaps the early academies Pusippus and Xenocrates, who were also very interested in number. According to Eudorus, the Pythagoreans postulated a supreme one, below which a monad and a dyad of form and matter existed. Metaphysical opposites follow on from these. So the good comes from the monad, and evil comes from the dyad, and so forth. So the highest one, the one that's above the monad, is called Zeus, and also Huperano Theos, the highest god, or even the transcendent god, if that's not an anachronistic translation. So we'll return to these metaphysics shortly. We also have in the first century Moderatus of Gadiz, which is Cadiz in modern Spain. We know little about Moderatus, really, but we know he wrote Pythagoricae Scholae, lectures on Pythagoreanism or Pythagorean lectures. We also know that, like Numenius a century or so later, Moderatus considered that the big boys, namely Plato, Aristotle, Spusippus, Aristoxenus, and Xenocrates, were plagiarists. They took all the good stuff in their philosophy from Pythagoras. In other words, for Moderatus, Platonism is really Pythagoreanism pretending to be something else, an attitude that we saw in Numenius in episode 78. Now, Moderatus is important for a somewhat problematic reason. Simplicius, our favorite late Platonist commentator, and he's our favorite because he takes the time to quote so many early authors at length that he preserves loads of cool stuff which would otherwise be lost today. Simplicius preserves a passage, a metaphysical passage, which he says he's quoting from Porphyry. And this is Porphyry quoting Moderatus. So, how much of this quote is from Porphyry, and how much is the pure Moderatus from the source? Or perhaps it was a quote from Moderatus which Porphyry sort of commented on, making it a bit more Platinian than it originally was. At any rate, all of this is hotly debated, but if it is Moderatus, or maybe insofar as it is Moderatus, this is a very significant quotation. So here's our quote in John Dillon's translation from his book The Middle Platonists. It seems that this opinion concerning matter was first held among the Greeks by the Pythagoreans, and after them by Plato, as indeed Moderatus tells us. For he, that's Plato, following the Pythagoreans, declares that the first one is above being 
and all essence, while the second one, which is the truly existent and the object of intellection, he says is the forms. The third, which is the soul realm, psychicon, participates in the one and the forms, while the lowest nature, which comes after it, that of the sense realm, does not even participate, but receives order by reflection from those others. Matter in the sense realm being a shadow cast by not being, as it manifests itself primarily in quantity, and which is of a degree inferior even to that. End of quote. Now, we can better situate these two metaphysical schemes, that of Eudorus and that of Moderatus, if we consider separately the identities that are being claimed and the theory involved. So first, identity. Both thinkers are claiming to be Pythagoreans, or more accurately, they're claiming to be expounding the metaphysics first taught by Pythagoras, not Plato. It's very common to read in the doxographical literature that this or that thinker was a Pythagorean, but here we have the thinkers themselves making this claim. Again, more or less what we saw with Numenius. To take a contrasting case, we never find Philo claiming to be a Pythagorean. He claims to be a Jew. So in these two cases, Eudorus and Moderatus, we have self-identifying Pythagoreans. Now, do we want to identify them as Pythagorean? This brings us to their doctrine. Both of these thinkers are expounding a form of Platonist metaphysics. Eudorus's positing of a one and a dyad, as we've seen in earlier episodes, goes back not to Pythagoras or even the early Pythagoreans, but to Plato's unwritten doctrines. Now, Plato posits two original principles, as far as we can tell, a one and a dyad. But Eudorus has added an even more primordial one at the top of this chain. So he has a one as an original principle, followed by a monad and a dyad, or form and matter. The pairs of linked opposites that follow on these principles remind us of the table of opposites, which Aristotle attributed to the so-called Pythagoreans in his book, The Metaphysics. And this opposing pairs approach to reality was identified as a Pythagorean approach in later times, regardless of whether or not it had anything to do with Pythagoras or with early Pythagoreanism. Now, Eudorus, who was living in the first century and had absorbed all this lore about Pythagoreanism, as well as having read Plato's Timaeus and the Republic and so forth, dialogues which were often read in his time as being Pythagorean because they're full of mathematical puzzles. So the idea is that Plato was learning from people like Timaeus, the Pythagorean, and Eudorus, having surely heard reports of Plato's unwritten doctrines from somewhere, quite naturally constructs a metaphysical system which combines the best of both worlds, with a supreme one, drawing on Plato's Parmenides and other dialogues, and an opposite pair of monad-dyad, which is seen in some circles as being, you know, sort of quintessentially Pythagorean doctrine. And he naturally thinks that the whole system goes back to Pythagoras, or the Pythagoreans. In other words, Eudorus calls himself a Pythagorean, but we would rightly call him a Platonist. A middle Platonist, even. Now, what about Moderatus? Now, this is really interesting, because Moderatus has gone full-bore Platonist. He doesn't even include the pairs of opposites, as far as we know. He has instead a system of three ones. One of them, haha, supreme and transcending being itself, so a kind of ultimate, inaccessible, transcendent one. The second being a noetic reality containing or identical with 
the forms, and the third being soul. The material realm is a realm of non-being which lurks at the bottom of this chain of realities. Now this is exactly the system of Plotinus, which will come to dominate Platonism from the 3rd century onward. But we seem to see it here, expounded in the 1st century. What the actual heck is going on? Well, again, it may be that Porphyry has glossed the heck out of this passage of Moderatus, in essence, bringing the 1st century Pythagoreans' doctrine up to date and Plotinianizing it. But I feel like Moderatus must have had some system which was basically an emanatory three-ones type of setup. And as E.R. Dodds points out in his seminal article, The Parmenides of Plato and the Neoplatonic One, the primary origin of these threefold metaphysical setups is to be found in Plato's cryptic dialogue, The Parmenides, when read as a metaphysical treatise. If you read The Parmenides from a post-Platinian perspective, in fact, you pretty much can see the one, the noose, and the soul outlined in the text. And the fact that it's such a difficult dialogue to interpret means that this interpretation kind of gains incredibility. I mean, what else is the Parmenides supposed to mean? It is by no means clear. So, it looks like already in the first century, Neoplatonism, or what we at the Schwepp called Late Platonism, this was alive and well in the works of Moderatus of Gades. It's difficult to know what to make of this, except that it's another indication that the hard lines drawn between Middle and Neoplatonism in some scholarship are very artificial, and we don't think they really do the job they're meant to do unless we treat them with great caution. Now, John Whitaker has written a number of articles in which he looks at these Neopythagoreans, like Moderatos, the pseudo Architas's book on first principles, and many other texts which we do not have the scope to look into in this podcast and concludes that the rise of apophatic theology, that is, positing a first god or first principle, which is absolutely remote and transcendent from all human understanding, human language, etc., even transcending being itself, and all possible attributions we might make of it, the rise of such apophatic conceptions of God can be traced to this Neopythagorean tradition, whose speculations about the One as a metaphysical principle led them to strip it of everything which might add complexity and thus rob it of perfect oneness. Because obviously if something's totally one, it can't be complex at all, it can't have parts. In the end, even the name one will have to go when this line of thinking is pursued to its conclusion by thinkers like Plotinus in the 3rd century and beyond. So we bring this up here because there's undoubtedly some truth in it, even if it isn't the whole story. With Eudorus, Moderatos, and Philo, we see already in the first century a certain, rather serious-minded type of Platonist who is ready to strip God of everything, to make God into a primordial simplicity about which nothing can be said. There's a spectrum of how theistic you would want it to be when doing this. So Philo has a, such a transcendent God, but he's also happy to quote the Septuagint scriptures about God throwing epithets and actions around with wild abandon. So on the one hand, in his more metaphysically serious moments, he'll strip attributes away from God, and then the next minute he'll say, God grew angry with the Israelites and sent down, you know, a blah blah blah. Eudorus, too, looked to traditional names for God, Zeus and God, Theos, when describing his first principle, while also describing it as a one. 
For Moderatus, we have no evidence that he was even using terms like God in his metaphysics, though he may well have been. It was certainly intellectually possible to avoid that approach, though, and stick to arithmetical concepts in describing the highest reality, which may well have been what Moderatus did. And so, this brings us to the second century, where we're supposed to be in the chronology of the podcast. Sorry we didn't cover these first century Neopythags back when we were looking at Philo, but there it is. Now, what was going on in the second century vis-a-vis Neopythagoreanism? Back in episode 78, attentive listeners will recall, we talked about the great Numenius of Apamea, who most ancient writers describe as a Pythagorean. And as we saw, he also seems to situate himself in the line of Pythagoras. Numenius posits a highest reality which is a transcendent noose of some kind, not a noose which exercises noesis, but a noose which abides in stillness, yet gives rise to the rest of reality. Then there's another noose, which is the active noose, the demiurgic noose, and a third noose below that one, which is associated in some way with the cosmos down here. To us, Middle Platonism with a strong whiff of what was to come in Late Platonism, to the ancients and to some modern readers, Neopythagoreanism. Take your pick. But sometime in the second century, also from Syria, we have an important writer widely classed as a Neopythagorean, among other things, who was doing something very different from the thinkers we've discussed thus far. This was Nicomachus of Gerasa. What can we say about this guy? Well, he was from a little town in Syria, and he lived maybe sometime in the first half of the second century. Nicomachus himself mentions Thrasyllus in his surviving works, so we know he lived later than the reign of Tiberius. And Apuleius is reported to have made a Latin translation of Nicomachus's introduction to arithmetic, which means it was already around when Apuleius was working. So we're looking at the early part of the second century. Now, Nicomachus wrote four books that we know of, two of which survive and two of which don't. The two surviving ones are the Arithmetike Esagoge, Introduction to Arithmetic, and Engeridion Harmonikes, Handbook of Harmonics. So these two technical works were hugely influential, both within Platonism, so we have commentaries on the introduction to arithmetic from Iamblichus and John Philoponus, and in society more general, the medieval Latin and Greek worlds continued to read these handy introductory manuals right into the modern period. In Latin, in a translation made by Boethius, he of Consolation of Philosophy fame, and Apuleius' translation seems to have vanished for whatever reason, and Nicomachus was basically a canonical authority on arithmetic and harmonic theory right through the Middle Ages. His introduction to arithmetic has handy things like multiplication tables, our earliest ones preserved in book form. Nicomachus doesn't go in much for proofs, so he's not a Euclid, but rather a competent arithmetician concerned with the practicalities of doing maths. In other words, this is the sort of book you would read in your maths class at high school. However, there is some theory in the introduction to arithmetic, theory of a decidedly Platonist stamp. So the noetic and sensible realms are distinct, and here Nicomachus cites Plato's Timaeus 27d, thus mathematics is a valuable study since it deals with noetic realities rather than with the shifting, perishable cosmic realities. Arithmetic, we're told, existed already in the mind of the creating God who made the cosmos. Hence, the cosmos was created through number. 
Now, this idea is obviously one with a long subsequent pedigree in Western esotericism. The highest god is equated with the monad. He is, however, also a demiurgic noose. So we have a practical manual of arithmetic cast within the conceptual space of a fairly standard Middle Platonist worldview, with a lot of number involved. Now, what about the two works that don't survive? This is where it gets intriguing and even esoteric. We have reports that Nicomachus wrote a Life of Pythagoras, which was used as an acknowledged source by Porphyry in his Life of Pythagoras, and which we think is silently rifled for material by Iamblichus in his On the Pythagorean Life. So Nicomachus was a major contributor to the legends and lore surrounding Pythagoras going into late antiquity. We can probably conclude from the fact that he wrote this book that in some way he saw himself as a Pythagorean or continuing the tradition of Pythagoras. This assumption is greatly strengthened when we turn to Nicomachus's other lost work, The Theology of Arithmetic. Now, we do not possess this work anymore, but we have another work, also entitled Theologumena Arithmeticis, which has come down to us among the works of the great Iamblichus. Scholars argue about whether or not the Theologumena is really by Iamblichus. I, for one, don't see any reason to doubt it particularly. If it isn't by Iamblichus, it certainly might as well be by Iamblichus, because it exhibits all the signs of Iamblichian thinking about mathematics, and of Iamblichus's notorious habit of repackaging the works of earlier philosophers. Uh, but in this case, we're looking at long sections taken from Nicomachus's Theologumena, intercut with passages from the On the Decad by Anatolius, the bishop of Laodicea, who was one of Iamblichus's teachers. Yes, theurgic late Platonists were perfectly capable of studying under Christian bishops, and this should not surprise us, but more on this when we get to the 3rd century and beyond. The work also preserves a valuable citation from Speusippus, and all of this material sort of cited from earlier works is linked together by notes and things, so the whole thing has a feeling of a kind of commonplace book on arithmological matters put together by an unknown hand, a sloppily put-together anthology document. Eh, it's probably not by Iamblichus, but you never know. But the Theologumena is a precious document. It is our most comprehensive, fully preserved, arithmological work from antiquity. We have every reason to suspect that there was a widespread arithmological tradition, and we find hints of arithmology in authors from Philo onwards, and the discipline seems to have really taken off, especially in strands of esoteric Christianity, which we shall be talking about. But the Theologumena is special. It shows us the reflective, as it were, theological side to mathematics. And it was written by a mathematician. So let's get into what's in the Theologumena. Just to be clear, what we're going to be looking at is not the work of Nicomachus. This is the probably 4th century work, traveling among the works of Iamblichus in the manuscript tradition, but preserving loads of long quotes from Nicomachus, and it's well worth looking at. Let's look at the monad for the moment. Now, the Theologumena is organized such that it has 10 chapters, each of which covers one of the numbers from 1 to 10. Let's start with the monad. Now, this is not to be confused with the digit 1. We're talking about noetic number here, so these are numbers in themselves, not numbers make, made up of other numbers. 
That is, the dyad in the Theologumena is not simply two monads added together, one plus one equals two. It is a kind of primordial two-ness. Similarly, the monad is a oneness, conceived of not arithmetically, but arithmologically. So let's quote Waterfield's translation of the Theologumena here on the monad. Nicomachus says that God coincides with the monad since he is seminally everything which exists, just as the monad is in the case of number. And there are encompassed in it potential things which, when actual, seem to be extremely opposed. So, as a parenthesis, here we seem to have a coincidentia oppositorum idea, just as it is seen throughout the introduction to arithmetic to be capable, thanks to its ineffable nature, of becoming all classes of things, and to have encompassed the beginning, middle, and end of all things, because the monad is the beginning, middle, and end of quantity, of size, and moreover of every quality. End of quote. Now this is a little taste of the first section of the Theologumena. Each number in the Decad, of course, has its section, and each is described with a fascinating mixture of arithmetical properties— the dyad, for instance, is the number where adding it to itself is the same as multiplying it by itself. Neopythagorean lore, sometimes backed up by fanciful esoteric etymologies based in Greek. So the triad is called piety by the Pythagoreans. Hence the word trias in Greek, which means triad, is derived from the word terror, the verb train, to feel fear. Hence fear and caution, hence piety or God-fearingness. And um, we also find Platonist metaphysics. So the quaternary or tetrad contains within it the completion of everything in the universe, which arises from a point, then a line, then a plane, then a three-dimensional figure. Hence, the universe has a fourfold nature within its very structure. So there you go. That's a tiny taste of the riches in store for readers of the Theologumena, and I highly recommend checking out this short but densely packed work. Now, lovers of Western esotericism will be familiar with the phenomenon of pansemioticism, the hermeneutics of metaphor whereby everything means everything else, and the universe is a sort of web of intricate correspondences, and this gets reflected in language and signs, so that you can add up the digits of a word, for example, with numerical correspondences to letters, and find that it sum is the same as the sum of another word, so those two words must have some kind of intrinsic connection, etc., etc. Now, the approach to arithmetic in the Theologumena is a kind of mathematical pansemioticism. So the monad is the ultimate source of everything, as we've seen. But the four, the tetrad, completes the monad by bringing it into its full expression in a stereometric universe. But the number 10 the sacred tetractus of the Pythagoreans, is really an expression of four of the tetrad, since one plus two plus three plus four equals ten, so that the first four numbers add up to the sacred ten. The ten is thus really the monad. So you see the kind of thinking here. It isn't random or arbitrary, as it involves the actual properties of numbers at every step of inference, but it isn't the sort of thing you learn in maths class either. It's a very interesting and different way of thinking about number than we do if we're just doing arithmetic. Now, this has been a whirlwind tour of some of the developments of Greek arithmology in the 2nd century and Neopythagorean metaphysics more globally. 
Now, this stuff really did have staying power. Glancing ahead in time, vis-a-vis arithmology, we'll see, as we mentioned earlier, a real blossoming of it in Christianity. Numbers are going to be read not merely as instruments for counting, but as a rich, symbolic language through which scriptures can be interpreted. Philo already starts this trend in the first century, but the Christians take it up with undisguised glee. This kind of thinking also flourishes in later Platonism, as we shall see, especially in works like Proclus's commentary on the Timaeus, which goes absolutely number crazy. But last but not least, this kind of thinking is alive and well today in Western esotericism. The idea of sacred geometry, to take one example, developed by very accomplished geometers like Keith Critchlow within a framework at least partially Genonian in its approach to tradition with a capital T, and taught in institutional settings like the Prince's School of Traditional Arts in London, this sacred geometry has become an ingredient in many modern Western esoteric traditions. Critchlow, in fact, wrote a fascinating, deeply Platonizing introduction to Waterfield's edition of the Theologumena, which we sort of quoted from earlier. And his introduction is a beautiful work of esoteric Platonist arithmology. Just like the authors we've examined in this episode, though it situates itself not in the Platonist tradition, but in the tradition of Plato, the Pythagorean. Now, this episode has been a pretty inadequate introduction to the mysteries of numerical speculation afoot in the 1st and 2nd centuries, but hopefully it's given some insights into some of the things that were going on. The arithmology that we have from this period is all more or less Platonist, sees itself as more or less Pythagorean, and approaches number as a metaphysical constituent of reality. Now, what would happen if we took these numerical realities, set them in motion, and in time? Well, by a Critchlovian ordering of knowledge, we would have the science or liberal art of astronomy. Number in space and time. In the next episode, we shall turn to developments in Hellenistic astronomy in the 2nd century, looking at perhaps the greatest, or at least the most influential, astronomer of antiquity. I refer, of course, to Claudius Ptolemy. And of course, Ptolemy was also the most influential astrologer of antiquity and the Middle Ages, which makes things very interesting. After we discuss Ptolemy, it will be time to dive into our most hardcore astrological handbook from antiquity and its author, Vettius Valens, whom we last saw way back in our episode on Hellenistic astrology. If your appetite was whetted back then, gentle listener, well, the stars have finally come right and you are fated to be satisfied. And until the appointed Kairos, stay esoteric. <laughs>